Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan for episode number 44. I am your host, Jason Padolan. And today, geez, we just keep knocking it out of the park with the guests here on Up My Hockey. I hope you appreciate them as much as I am grateful for them as we bring David Quinn, the head coach of the New York Rangers, to the program. Uh, David and I have never met before. So this is a back-to-back guest that, uh, I shouldn't say we've never met. That's actually an untruth. We have met, we met at a golf uh, tournament once, uh, you know, briefly kind of had a couple words with each other, but we've never had a conversation before. Uh, so this marks the second guest in a row, uh, that I have not, I don't have a personal, uh, relationship with. And David and I have been trying to hook this up for months he actually agreed to do an interview, uh, geez, it was months ago, four or five months ago. Uh, the day of the interview, something came up for David and he had to cancel. And then now here we are, you know, five months later and I reached out again. I'm a pretty persistent guy. I think persistence is, uh, is a heck of a trait when it comes to uh, a lot of things, but especially tracking down uh, high profile guests. I think David finally got uh, tired of me uh, asking him to to rejoin the program, so he he relented and uh, and agreed. And I'm so glad he did. And I think David was glad he did too. I, I it really seemed like he enjoyed himself. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Ninety minutes, you know, with somebody you've never met one on one. If you actually think about that, that's sort of a hard thing to even comprehend that you're able to do. So for us to, to bang out 90 minutes quite easily, it was effortless. We covered a lot of really cool topics. David's just really approachable. I think, you know, he made it, he made it super easy because he is willing to communicate. He's a great communicator. He'll talk about anything. He'll give you his honest answer about anything. And I think that's uh, what the New York Ranger players get on a day-to-day basis, I think, came through loud and clear in this interview. He's a man of integrity. Uh, he says what he means, and he means what he say, uh, says. And I think he's really comfortable in his own skin. I think he's he's proven to himself what he's all about. Uh, I think he's earned the right to uh, you know to to feel comfortable and to feel like he's in the right place. And and that aura or that air uh, is easily felt. So we definitely had a great conversation. We covered his his life as a player, which many of you may not know. You're probably going to find out a lot of things here today. That Dave was a first first round pick. He was 13th overall in the 1984 draft. Uh, most memorably known for the year Mario Lemieux got drafted. And he also went on to play BU. He was drafted by the North Stars, went on to be, uh, Boston University, where he was diagnosed with hemophilia, of all things. We cover that. We cover what the doctors said. Uh, we cover him being out of the game for four seasons, four seasons without putting his skates on in his early 20s, only to come back. Uh, and to give it a run and tried for two seasons, tried to make the 88 Olympic team, I believe. And uh, anyways, got out of hockey, got into coaching, or got out of playing and got into coaching. We cover all that. And we we talk about character. We talk about all the intangibles that he loves, that he looks for. We talk about what makes a great coach. We talk about what are some of the things that he looks for in a player, 
who are the guys that he wants in his locker room and what makes guys like that special. There's a lot of great stuff in here. Like when I was trying to find highlights of this, uh, of this conversation, my gosh, my list just went on and on and on because there's so many nuggets in here that I know you guys are going to love. So I'm grateful, David, if you're listening, awesome, awesome conversation. You're an amazing guest. And I know everyone here listening is going to enjoy this. So, uh, Without further ado, I bring you the head coach of the New York Rangers, Mr. David Quinn. All right, here we are. Welcome back to uh, Up My Hockey. Here we are with episode 44, and we have Dave Quinn, head coach of New York Rangers, on the program. It's been six months in the making, but, uh, but we made it. Thanks so much for being here, Dave. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. Looking forward to talking with you. Sweet, sweet. Um, in the lead up I had for this, uh, which I like because I get to do a little bit of homework. I don't do too much because I don't want to be not curious, if that makes any sense. Right. Yep. So but I do like to have a little bit of a framework, but found out that you're a you're a hell of a player in your own right, which, um, you know, I didn't know. Right? I just knew you as David Quinn, the uh, the coach, not David Quinn, the player. So if you wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind starting there uh, with, with you playing and, and coming out of Kent prep and being the 13th overall draft pick. Um Maybe I'll lead into that a little bit differently because you were such a high draft pick and you were coming from a prep school in the States, which wasn't the norm at the time for somebody that highly regarded to be playing prep hockey. Uh, did you expect that to be happening? Was that on your radar going into Kent State? Uh, it certainly wasn't on my radar when I went to Kent. You know, when I went to Kent, it was there were a lot of reasons why I went, mainly because of the education, too. Um, you know, I came from Cranston, Rhode Island. Uh, my mother was a school bus driver. My father was a police officer. And it just seemed like such an incredible opportunity to you know, put me put myself in a position where I might have a much better chance to go to college, you know, from an educational standpoint uh, and an athletic standpoint. But mind you, back then, this was in 1980 when uh, I w- was going through the process of deciding whether to go to Kent. Uh, there was no Internet. You know, I had never heard of the place. I didn't know anything about prep school hockey. I was all about going to play for my local high school and you know, uh, but, you know, the more that I did my homework on Ken and what the opportunities might come from it, it just seemed like a no brainer. And to be quite honest with you, Jason, when I went to Kent, uh, I knew hockey was my primary sport, but I played baseball and football. And I was just hoping to get a scholarship in any of those sports. It really wasn't one sport that I thought, you know, I was a little bit better than, than the others at that time. And, you know, it just, uh, you know, it was really uh, an easy decision in a lot of ways, leaving it home at Leaving home at 15 wasn't easy, but it certainly seemed like the right thing to do. And, you know, once I got to Kent playing hockey, football and baseball, you know, really by the end of my sophomore year, it looked like hockey was going to be the sport that was going to give me the best opportunity in life. So and was that your draft year? Was that 84 at the end of your sophomore year? No. So, you know, I went to Kent in 81. Uh, My sophomore year was 81. Uh, During my junior year, uh, I really realized that, you know, maybe hockey was going to be the sport for me. And I ended up, sorry about that. And I ended up, uh, it was funny because during Christmas time of my junior year, um, I was getting done with a game and I was coming to the locker room and five, six, seven people, you actually had to walk through the crowd to get to your locker room. And all these people are asking me when my birthday was. (laughs) And I thought this is going to be one hell of a birthday in July when I turned 16 
but uh, come to find out they were all pro scouts and, you know, they just didn't know anything about me or know when my birthday was and whatnot. So that kind of opened up my eyes that, wow, geez, maybe I do have a chance in the sport. And, you know, I was starting to get interest from colleges and, but what uh, the funniest thing was, it was uh, going into my senior year. I was, I was in training camp for football. It was September, early September. And we're in, in the middle of two days and I'm sitting in my room, laying on my couch, reading a book in between two days and my roommate comes in. And he says, hey, you're in the USA Today. Now, the USA Today had just become a newspaper paper back in 83. And I said, I'm in the USA Today for what? He said, well, they've got the you know, rankings for the NHL draft for next, next, uh, the next upcoming draft. And they have you ranked 16th. And I had no inclination that I was anywhere near that highly thought of at the time. And, you know, that really was the beginning of me realizing that, you know, hockey not only might be an opportunity for me college-wise, but – it might be an opportunity for me to have a career in. That is so wild. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing what a decade, what a difference a decade makes. You know, like even even in my draft, which was which was ninety four. Right. Uh, you know, it was the hockey news was kind of where you got your stuff from. Maybe right. a little bit of TSM, but it wasn't obviously like it was now. I mean, no. you knew where you stood a little bit more so than than the ten years previous, but it was still. I mean, it, it was big, but I mean, now it's just blowing up. You yeah, know, it's crazy. Cool. These guys are on the radar two years prior and they're ranking right. guys. Right. Um, but that's amazing. So you were a three sport athlete, essentially, at, at right. that at that level. Um, must have been a hell of an athlete by the sounds of it. And and hockey just ended up kind of you grew into hockey or hockey grew into you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was uh, you know growing up. I was kind of the big fat kid in the neighborhood. You know, I was a kid in Little League wearing the Babe Ruth uniform because I was so big. And, you know, when I got to Kent at 15, I was six feet, 215. And, you know, I could skate. You know, probably my greatest strength as a player was my skating. And when you got that size and you can skate, you're going to have an opportunity and a chance. And uh, and I also could run. So that was why football, I was running back in football and, you know, I could run in baseball. So, you know, it was uh, I was very fortunate in that regard. I grew up in a neighborhood where there literally are three baseball fields, you know, 10 yards from the back door of my house. There's four basketball courts. There's a pond. And there's the city pool. So, I mean, sports were my life. Do you, I mean, I wasn't going to go there, but I mean, it, it sounds like it would be maybe a good topic. Did you have kids of your own right now? No, 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 kids, no just, you know, coaching when you're chasing the coaching dream, it's amazing uh, the sacrifices you have to make. But right, I always tell people every year I've got 24 kids, regardless of what level I'm coaching at. Yeah. No, so true. So true. I was just wondering, though, like, because there is a big debate and, and, you know, a lot of people on this platform listen either as coaches right now or parents or or the athletes of trying to get, you know, where where you are right now. Uh, and the thing is, is this early specialization and how quick do you do it? And should you be an athlete or try and play multi-sports for as long as you can? Do you have um, do you have a dog in that fight of where you would say what, what what's better? Yeah, I would say without question, play as many sports as possible, because I just think there's an overlap. I think you want to stay hungry in hockey. I know kids play year round. Um, there's an awful lot of off ice training that's going on that probably you and I never did. I know I never did it. I, I don't know if it, at, you know, when you're in your early teens, whether you were, uh, you know, committed off the ice to the level kids are this day and age. And, you know, I think maybe 15, 16 is where you really got to start maybe focusing in on one particular sport because uh, now you're getting into the, you know, the real high, you're getting older and you're getting to a level where, you know, if you want to make it, you're probably going to make a little bit extra commitment. But I, I'm a big believer in the more sports you play at a young age, the the better chance you have in all sports, whatever sport you're going to be really good at. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, 
Yeah, great, great advice. I, I'm starting a spring program this year for the first time. And, you know, spring hockey's big and it's kind of, you know, a lot of people look forward to it. Uh, you know, it's two months extra at the end of the hockey season. Yeah. Uh, I am a believer of spring hockey, not so much of summer hockey, but even with the spring hockey, like I want my players to like go still play baseball if you can, or lacrosse. Right. Like, I, I want right. to, I want to make sure that they can do that. It's not right. like you have to commit to this and that's all you can do. Um, right. I do like that exposure. I think that's great. And they should be doing it for as long as they can. So I'm with you on that one. And there's nothing wrong with playing hockey. You know, you know, I used to play summer hockey, you know, once a week with my buddies. You know what I mean? Like I'd go to a rink 10 minutes from where I live and we'd go play and have fun. So that's different than, you know, playing on a nine, 10 month travel team and having that level of commitment. You know, there right. is a difference. Yeah, big difference. Can you walk us through um, that 84 draft was was studded with uh, a lot of players. I'm going to give you my my little personal take on the 84 draft because I have a lot of connection to it. But what was that experience like for you? Did you go to Montreal for it? Yeah, I did. It's, it's a great story because like you touched on earlier, I mean, you know, back in 1984, nobody was drafted prep school players. Uh, nobody in the hockey world had ever heard of the Kent School. And I remember going up there knowing I, knowing I was going to get drafted in the first round. Um, and I remember, you know, sitting there with my mother and father, my coach, Jack Parker, and my great friend, John Harwood, who was turned out, you know, inevitably became my agent. And I was sitting in one section by myself with my parents and my friend and, and my family. And in the other section were 200 major junior players and all their families. <laughs> and I'll never forget when I got, you know, the 13th overall, the Minnesota North Stars, big David Quinn, I got up and I waddled down and go to the stage. And I, I literally remember just kind of glancing in that section and half the kids had to be looking at each other like, who's this guy? What's who, who, never heard of this guy? Where's he coming from? Where's the Kent school? So it was, uh, it was an eye opener from that end of it, really realizing that I came out of nowhere, but it was an incredible experience. And that was a, like you said, it was a hell of a first round. I'm sure the North stars are kicking their ass and they ended up taking me and I came down with hemophilia two years later, but uh, it was a hell of a draft. Mario got drafted first overall that year. I remember him just standing up waving and sitting back down, not going to Pittsburgh stable. But uh, it was a really uh, cool experience uh, in, the, in the old Montreal Forum. That's nice. Yeah, I want to touch on that list. But did you? So did you go in a couple of days early? And were they doing? Were they doing the draft day interviews like they like they do now? Or or was that not your experience? Yeah, I, I went and uh, interviewed with probably seven or eight teams. Uh, I remember going into Washington's uh, hotel suite, and I knew they were interested. I had a lot of contact with them, and uh, like I said, I was six feet two fifteen. I was very thick. And, you know, I remember sitting there talking to them. There's about 12 guys in there. And they said, how tall are you? I said, I'm six feet. No, I got short legs. I got a long torso. I might not look six feet because I was pretty broad at the time. And they said, lay down. <laughs> so I lay down and they take out a tape measure. And I was 72 inches, maybe a little more on the nose. And it kind of surprised all of them. <laughs> so that's like, so obviously that's before like the central scouting yeah. fitness testing and all yeah, that, that stuff. Very they, actually had to, they had to verify it for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's wild. Do you um? I've covered that a little bit on this show, but like that's a pretty interesting experience. And interesting may be the wrong adjective for it, but for an eighteen-year-old kid to go into a room without a parent, without an agent, without anybody, and you're surrounded by twelve men, a lot of them senior uh, people in the game, and they're just drilling you. Like, do you remember anything about those interviews um, that you know that, that you'd want to share? Yeah, no. You know, it's funny. I. Uh... I don't know why I don't say this with any arrogance. I was very comfortable with older people. I wasn't nervous or intimidated. Um, it was uh, it was just me answering questions honestly and, you know, telling them about myself, whatever questions I'd ask. I gave them an honest answer. And, 
you know, really wasn't, I wasn't overwhelmed by it really. It was, uh, right. it was actually fun meeting people and, you know, trying to find out what they were looking for and, and some of the questions that they would ask. Gotcha. No, that's cool. Yeah. My, uh, just a quick of my draft year, I, I had a coach that there was a pretty big divide in the coaching world with who my coach was at the time. And him and I kind of had one of these years, uh, and some of the some of the teams that I went in for like were very pro uh, Brian Maxwell, and, right. and and that made them anti me for whatever reason. So like it was hostile. <laughs> it was very hostile environment yeah, yeah. a lot of times, right? Yeah. So uh, that that got a little bit intimidating, and honestly, a little bit annoying by the end when like half the guys were just you know it was like why did you even call me in here? Like they're just yeah. grilling me, you know? Yeah. Like yeah, it makes you stronger. It's all good. It does. Uh, that draft year though was wild for me because like number one like Lemieux was my idol growing up um yeah. and, and it's so crazy right because you're 10 years my senior in the hockey world that's like a lifetime in right. life it's not you know but right. like that me being 12 and him being 22 right and like yeah. already been in the league for four yeah. years it's like oh, yeah. he was my guy right, right. Uh, so right. he goes first overall in 84 number two was Muller who I ended up getting traded for one for one <laughs> uh number four was I afraid he was my roommate at this alumni event that I just went to yeah. I'm interviewing you right now at 13 Karkner was 14 he was yeah. on the team I played my first NHL game for in Florida wow. that's crazy we had Greg Smith you remember Greg Smith at yeah. 22 yeah Yep. Yeah. So right. Smitty was a teammate of mine. Uh, rest in peace. Uh, yeah, just yeah, a be yeah. one of the beauties in the game. Absolute yeah. beauty. He threw an ashtray across the bar at me. He wanted to knock me out one night because I was playing his <laughs> video game. And uh, and then there's two other ones I want to mention. At 60, Ray Shepard first assists on my only NHL goal, wow. uh, which is super cool from '84. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then I'm going to test you on this one. At number 69, who went 69 in your draft? Who went 69? God, oh so that was be another multi-sport athlete. Oh, Tommy Glavin. Yes. Tommy Glavin. Yeah, yeah, Isn't yeah. that wild? Unbelievable. I remember Tom I Glavin, 1995 World Series MVP, got drafted 69th overall in the NHL draft. That's yeah. pretty impressive stuff. Well, he so. and I were the same age, obviously, and we played a lot of youth hockey against each other. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. Did it, who, had a, who had a better arm? He was a good player. Who would have been around? <laughs> Do I have to answer that? <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, you, you already mentioned it, uh, Dave. So you, you have this draft day experience. Uh, you know, you're, you're a first rounder of the North Stars. They obviously have big plans for you. They want you to do well. Uh, you make the decision go to be you. Were, you were, were they involved in that decision at that time, or was that just up to you and your family where, where you were headed there? Well, they were involved in it. Listen, there was, I, I wasn't ready to play in the National Hockey League, and I certainly wasn't going to forego an education or going to play college hockey to go play minor league hockey. And that's not a knock on minor league hockey, but, you know, and the North Stars were, you know, they understood and respected college hockey. And uh, so really, there really was no decision to be made at the time. Uh, it was clear that going into the draft, I wasn't going to get drafted in the first round. It was clear to me that I needed to play college hockey. I wasn't going to step in the National Hockey League. You know, my goal was to go to BU and stay as long as possible until I could play in the National Hockey League. And that was really what my mindset was going to be. I was in no rush to leave. Uh, I was going to leave when my play dictated it was time to leave and go play in the National Hockey League. Gotcha. How was your time in BU? Did you uh, did you enjoy it there? Did you feel you were developing as a player? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, as I touched on earlier, it was it was it was a great experience, but it was frustrating because uh, that's when I really started having medical issues when I got to BU. Uh, my freshman year, I missed half the season. I had what they call compartment syndrome, which is bleeding in your leg. And 
you can really lose uh, movement in your whole foot if you don't have it addressed. And I had surgery, missed half the season, had a very, very uh, healthy overall sophomore year. Uh, and it was my best year at BU. I was a second team All-American, first team All-Hockey East, World Juniors. We won the bronze medal that year. And things were really going in the right direction. And, um, you know, that was the year that uh, I had injuries but didn't miss games. But all my injuries were blood-related. They were all bruising. And I'll never forget, we had won the Hockey East Championship. And I had missed the first round of the playoffs, the only two games I missed all year, because I had a really bad bruise in my hand and thigh. And I really had trouble skating. And they held me out. And I played in the, in the championship series. We won the Hockey East Championship. We won number one seed in the country. But after that game, before the national tournament, our team doctor said to me, I want you to get your blood checked. He said, every injury you've had here has, blood, has been blood-related, and I want, to, I want you to see, see a hematologist. So we end up getting knocked out of the national tournament. We lose to Minnesota. The next morning, Lou Nanny calls me. They want to sign me and bring me into the playoffs. They were playing Chicago at the time. But back then, you couldn't sign an NHL contract and play in the Olympics, and my goal was to play in the 88 Olympics. And after that phone call, the next day I went to the hematologist, had my blood checked. And, you know, during the process of trying to decide what I was going to do, I pretty much knew I was going to stay at school and play one more year and then play on the Olympic team. Uh, when I went to talk to Jack Parker, my head coach at BU about it, our team doctor was there. And uh, when I walked in, they closed the door and they said, uh, your blood test came back and you're a hemophiliac. And I, I didn't know what a hemophiliac was. And he said, uh, and I, you know, my naivete, so I said, so what, what do I got to do? What pills do I take or how do we treat this? And he said, no, you don't understand. There's nothing we can do. We can't believe you've survived this long because I've had it my whole life, uh, playing football, hockey at this level, and you haven't been more seriously hurt. They said, your career's over. You've got to stop playing. <laughs> so you want to a hard conversation and a very, very difficult time in one's life. That certainly was, uh, was a very difficult time for sure. Holy smokes. Do you mind if we dig into that a little bit? Like, you know, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've already touched on it. But, I mean, here's a budding career, high aspirations on the brink of an Olympic team, still a first rounder of the NHL with hopes and dreams of doing that. And in the span of one conversation, you're told this is all done. Right. Uh, what what does the next day, week, hour, hours look like for you after that conversation? Well, you really don't believe it. And even when you leave the room, you don't believe it. You think there's no, I mean, I've played so long. I played my whole life. I, you know, I do get hurt a little bit more often. My bruises last a little longer, a little bigger. If that's the price I have to pay, then I want to keep going, you know? And ironically, uh, I talk my parents and BU into continuing to let me play. And I sign a waiver, releasing BU of any liability if anything happens to me. I come back, play my junior year. Of course, I get a bleed in my thigh. I'm in the hospital for five days. I miss 12 games, struggle coming back, finish really strong. Uh, season ends. I'm getting ready to go to the U.S. Olympic trials. Two weeks before, I go to play a pickup basketball game. I go up for a rebound. I come down on someone's ankle, severely sprain my ankle. Four o'clock that night, I'm in bed sleeping. My leg swells up. I got to go to the hospital. Compartment syndrome again, same leg. This time it's a lot worse. I spend five weeks in the hospital. I lose a little bit of movement in my right foot. And then that was basically the end of my career. Holy smokes. So you come back knowing that against 
these doctors' wishes. Talk to your parents. I can imagine the conversation with your mom. I know that would have been with with my mom. Uh, how was it being a player on the ice? So were you able to put like those fears, whatever they had pumped into you that what would happen and be able to play? Yeah, I didn't, it wasn't a concern for mine. I just, like I said, I, this isn't something that I had just acquired. I had had it my whole life. So, right. you know, I, I knew what I was dealing with. I'm sure it was a lot more difficult for my parents knowing some of the consequences and my coaches and you know, even some of my teammates, uh, what, what could happen. But for me, it was business as usual. Interesting. Yeah, because it's one thing to play while not knowing you have it. It's another thing to play while knowing you have it. I think, you know, like that would be a little bit different experience. Like maybe, who knows, trying to avoid contact or whatever. But I mean, if, if you were just rocking and rolling, that's uh, yeah. that's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I looked at the stats there, and it looks like you're you, you from that point, you try and play can't play you said it's the end of your career but you do make a comeback you're not playing for three years like what what happens in that in that span of time and uh for that three seasons well it was I think it was four years actually and I what happened was uh, like I said I had, I had lost some movement in my right foot during the second uh, compartment syndrome and you know I come back I go back to school I get my degree I'm trying to find my way and in uh, February of 91 uh I find out that there is medicine that I could take it hasn't been approved by the FDA yet. Uh, through the hemophilia community, I find out that there's this medicine that I could take that would raise my clotting level to 100%. I'd have to take it prophylactically, and I would have to get part of, I would have to sign up with the government and become part of the protocol to try to get it passed. So I go through that whole process. I end up getting approved. I become part of the protocol. I learn how to self-inject myself before every practice and every game. Dave Peterson is the 92 Olympic coach. He was the same coach in 88. He was my coach in the World Juniors. I've got a strong relationship with him. I reach out to him. I said, hey, coach, I don't know if you're interested, but I want to try and come back. You know, they've made some medical advancements for me. Uh, I weighed 250 pounds at the time, so I had a lot of weight to lose. Uh, I promised him I wouldn't weigh that much when I came to the Olympic trials. He said, no problem. We'd love to have you. You know, I get down to about 205. I train. I skate. I, you know, he gives me an opportunity um, you know, I'm on the Olympic tour. I told myself when I did that, I said, I'll give myself two years here. You know, if I don't make it in the NHL, I'm, I'm going to move on. I know the obstacles I got to overcome. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to waste, you know, play minor league hockey all the way down 35, no disrespect to, the, to that, but that's not what I was interested in doing. And, you know, I came back, I got cut in January uh, from the Olympics, which I should have. I went and played a little bit in Binghamton, played one full year in the IHL for the Cleveland uh, and then after that, I knew that, you know, and I had a good year. I mean, I was a good minor league player, but, you know, I just had missed too much hockey, had, you know, lost a little bit of my skating ability. And uh, after that, got into coaching. Yeah, that's wild. So you were like, you were off the ice for that period of time and tried to make uh, yeah. that comeback. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't skate at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is so, so wild. Uh, and it's interesting too how your career kind of connects. It keeps looping back, right? You know, like yeah. as far as like your first NHL contract, I think was given by the Rangers. Obviously, yeah. you're coaching for them now. And then uh, yeah. there's a connection with uh, Cleveland as well, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I end up, you know, end up going back. And my first head coaching job in pro hockey is with the Lake Erie Monsters. You know, the old Cleveland Lumberjacks that I played my one year of pro hockey with. So right. uh, I'm like a boomerang. You can't get rid of me. That's awesome. Uh, I find it interesting too, though, because I mean, there are coaches that are successful at your level uh, that haven't played. You know, there, there, there's there's a handful. There's not a lot, but there's a handful. 
uh, I find as a player, I always had more respect, just naturally more respect for the guys who had been there and, and done that. Uh, in, in your scenario with the with like what you went through and 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 like playing through that type of pain and that type of adversity, and not many guys can show up in your locker room and say, I can't no. go today, coach. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Climbing a river, right? I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Is that um is that something that you pride your teams in or or you know the the players that you uh, build or put your put around yourself? You know, it's funny, Jason. I don't know how many players know that I'm a hemophiliac. It's not, I, you know, it's not something I talk about. You know, some guys might ask me, you know, guys, you know, I think as the year goes on, some guys go, hey, coach, I didn't realize you were first round pick. I didn't realize you were, you know what I mean? So I think when they find out about my story, I may get more respect from a guy who may have played. You know what yeah. I mean? So, uh, and the fact that I'm not out, you know, pounding my chest and telling them all about it, uh, you know, I just don't think that's, you know, for me, that's not, what I'm there for. It's not about right. me my career. It's about me putting myself and them in the best position to have their best career possible. And if they find out about my career, then so be it. Yeah. That, uh, you just mentioned there that a couple of guys may maybe come up to you in the season and say, Hey, I didn't know coach, you were a first rounder. Uh, for me, that is one thing that I talk about now. And I was like that too, as a player, like, I don't know why, uh, mind you was a different, it was a different era, like with the internet and stuff too. But like, I wish I would have done more homework and understood the player behind the coach or the person yeah. behind the coach or knew more about who I was around. I just don't know why I never did. And it's one of my regrets. And I'm kind of a little bit surprised to hear that that's still happening now in, in this, in this age. Well, people ask me about Lafreniere already, right? I haven't met him in person. We've had conversations on the phone, but about three weeks ago, the New York post did a question and answer with him. And one of the questions were, it was, what do you know about coach Quinn? And it stunned me how much he knew about me. This kid took the time to, you know, find out about the guy that's going to coach him. And, you know, he knew I had a medical condition and had to quit playing. He knew I tried to come back. He knew I was a first rounder and, you know, I might get him some more ice time right out of the gate. <laughs> you know what? I mean, I, I know you're laughing and you're joking, but like there's an element of being a human being and caring about other human beings that actually does matter. And I, and I think yes, it yeah. says something about him. How many, I would bet half the guys on my team have no idea that I'm a hemophilia. Right. And here's an 18 year old kid that took the time and it has nothing to do with me. This kid took, you know, if Joe Smith was his coach. I'd be impressed that that's what he did, you know? And yeah. I think it gives, and I think it's a little, it's a small story, but I think it gives people a little bit of insight of what type of human being this kid is. Yeah, no, I think that's an amazing story. I love that. Like, and what, like one, it tells me he's curious. Two, it tells me he's he's humble enough. You know, he's not he's not pretentious. He wants to understand right. and know. He wants to be part of the part of the bigger solution. Like, I think that says a lot about him that he's willing to go and and do that work on his own. I love that. Um, when we go to you, and if we're gonna. I mean, go through your coaching career just a little bit uh, the, where I want to hop to because you, you got right into coaching right when you were done. You must have known that you wanted to be involved in the game and, and must have had a penchant for it even going up through, as a player, I assume. Right. Yeah, without question. I loved it. And, you know, I was very fortunate that uh, I did a little coaching when I was at BU uh, after I had to quit playing. I coached the JV team for a little while. I loved that. And, you know, I knew I wanted to stay in the game and I thought that you know, hopefully I could have some sort of impact on my players that I coached that my coaches had on me. I know going through difficult times in my life, my coaches were instrumental in helping me through difficult times. And, you know, I thought to myself, it'd be pretty cool if uh, I could do the same for some players. That is wild. What type of, uh, 
What type of a player were you before I get into the coaching? Like if you were to describe yourself as a player or maybe somebody, a current day player. Um, I could skate. Like I said, I mean, being six feet, 215, I could, you know, skating was my strongest attribute. I was physical. I could make a good outlet pass. I wasn't going to light it up on the power play, but, you know, I think an honest player who you could rely on and, you know, who showed up every night. Gotcha. Do you find yourself drawn to players of, of that ilk now? Um, I mean, I love tough players. Who doesn't, right? I mean, it's, uh, I know our game's gone to a high level of skill, but, you know, you watch these playoffs, still 200 by 80 out there. There's not a lot of room, you know, as I always like to tell our players, uh, this game's all about what can you do when someone's trying to stop you from doing it. It ain't about what you can do in a driveway. And, uh, you know, you got to have some sort of edge to you and a will to be successful. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that though. And I know, you know, you say who doesn't like tough players and, uh, I agree with that statement, but it is interesting watching the game now because it, there's not that many tough players from a fan's perspective, right? So uh, I've hailed the guys like the the Zach Cassians and the Tachooks and the, I mean, some of these names, the Tom Wilsons that can get it done, yeah. uh, that are big, heavy bodies, that can still play the game. I think that those guys, boy, like they're they're really worth their weight in gold right now, I think. Is that, is that how you feel as well? 100%, but there's also the element of hockey tough, right? Those guys bring an element from the fighting standpoint, yeah. which is an element in this game will never leave. But I'm talking about the hockey tough, you know, taking a hit, getting to dirty areas, you know, sacrificing yourself. Well, you know, this day and age, that's what toughness is. You know, the big time, you know, the three fights a night are done. Yeah. But, you know, the, the toughness, the hockey toughness, making, you know, being tough enough to make a play, take a hit, you know, things of that nature is, re, you know, consistently being hard on pucks, consistent, consistently getting into people's jerseys. Uh, you know, to me, that's this day and age, the way the sport's being played, that's what you need. That's true. I couldn't agree more because, and there is a big separation from regular season to the playoffs. Like I, as a fan, I went to a game, uh, couple of years ago it doesn't matter what game it was but like there was legitimately three hits in the whole game yeah. like I'm not even yeah. exaggerating it yeah. there was no price to be paid to get the puck out along the wall guys had their back turned there was nothing happening in front of the net and I couldn't believe watching it as a spectator like wow like what's happened to this game wow. but then you get into the playoffs and now you got to pay the price there and now you got to pay the price in front of the net and yeah. you know and those players some of them went away you know as, as no doubt no you and again I know listen it's 82 games it's a lot of wear and tear but I mean, it, it's a physical game. You can't get away from it. I mean, if you're going to try to get away from it, you're not going to be a productive player. And I'm sure in your career you've seen guys, guys that can help you get to the playoffs, but then they disappear in the playoffs. There are plenty of those players, you know. Yeah. And I remember talking about a team with uh, when I was the head coach at BU. An NHL team was called me regarding Gabriel Landeskog. And, you know, they knew I had coached him in Colorado when they were asking me, quizzing me on him. And I said – all I know about Landis Cog is when it's playoff time, this guy's going to show up. He's not only going to help you get to the playoffs, but when the playoffs start, he's going to help you win in the playoffs, you know? And there are plenty of players that, you know, through the regular season, to your point, that can be successful because it's just not as physical. Their warts are going to show once the playoffs start, and they're not going to be able to help you in the playoffs. Isn't that, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine somebody saying a better thing about me as a player if they would say that, you know, this guy's going to help you win in big yeah. games you know well, i think that's such a testament to a player um and whether whether you're skilled whether you're a guy who just defends like it doesn't matter right you need you need those guys that are going to help you win i think that's amazing you said that about him and i guess he's got the c in his jersey for a reason there right he must be must be made made properly yeah. i wanted to get back to so you coaching 
So I don't want to skip over the BU time, but you were an associate coach for a long time. Then you got your first opportunity as a head coach at the pro level with Lake Erie, if I did my homework correct. Is that that accurate? Yep. So you step into the pro job. What was that transition like for you, taking on that role at the pro level for the first time? Just like more from a person standpoint, like how did you feel walking in there? Well, I had coached pros at the world championships a few times. So, you know, there wasn't that nervousness that you might expect or wondering. That being said, you know, when you're a head coach at the American Hockey League level for the very first time, there's a little bit of a knot in your stomach. You don't know. I had been a head coach for two years at the U.S. National Program, but now it was my first real opportunity to be a head coach. And, you know, I'm confident. I know I think I can do a good job, but, you know, I'm really going to find out if I can make, you know, make or break it in this profession. That's really what I was doing. I was banking on myself and, you know, probably two days into it, I'm looking at all these players and, you know, literally I'm like 80% of these guys are the same age of the guys I was coaching at BU, you know, college hockey's 18 to 23, 24, right. And the game, you know, there's still two nets out there. There's still two blue lines in the center red line. The yeah. game's not changing. And it was uh, easy would be the wrong word, but it was a comfortable transition for me. I really wasn't nervous. There wasn't an intimidation factor. I had felt like uh, all the paths I had taken had built up for me to take that opportunity and hopefully take advantage of it. Awesome. And that's where you came in contact with Dave Oliver, if I'm correct, too, right? Yeah, Ali and I had never met, and Ali was the general manager at the time. And, uh, you know, not only did we become, you know, professionally very close, but personally very close. I mean, I got an awful lot of respect for him professionally, but he's one of my closest friends. And, you know, our, our relationship really uh, – it happened fast. I mean, we really relied on each other and leaned on each other. And, uh, you know, we uh, know what I love working more than, than with Ollie. Well, he's essentially part of the staff there too. I mean, I know things have changed at the minor league level now as well, but I mean, I, I just interviewed Dane Jackson recently and, you know, he won a cup with torts in Rochester. Torts was the only one on the bench. He yeah. didn't even have an assistant coach, you know? Right, so, right. Like, so that's changed quite a bit. Did you, you had a staff, I assume in Lake Erie, but Dave as being a GM was essentially part of your staff, right? Well, Ollie was uh, actually, Ollie was GM assistant coach for one year too. My last year there, he was the only assistant coach and he was the general manager. You know, Jock Collender works for the late Cleveland monsters now and he's employed by them, but Jock and I developed a great relationship and I leaned on him a lot during my time there. He would be the eye in the sky. He'd come on trips with us. So uh, he'd come on the ice with us too. He'd help out. So we're fortunate to have him on the staff as well. That's awesome. And so when I look, and I don't know like how stats can lie, obviously, sometimes, but a lot of times coaches are measured on the success they have in the win-loss column. And, and Lake Erie wasn't a successful place for that to happen at, over your three years. Do you think that things were going as kind of expected? Or, you know, what reason I say that is because sometimes that team just isn't set up to win. You know, they don't have the prospects in the, in the system to win. But uh, how do you think, feel that time went when you were there? You know, it's funny. You go down there, and not really my job was to please, the, you know, the management of the Colorado Avalanche, you know. And as much as winning and losing is part of it, it's all about development. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I do when I take a job is I go, I do the best job I can. I, you know, try to treat people the right way, and I don't have an agenda. And, you know, if you look at the history of the Lake Erie Monsters, uh, I think there was a 12-year stretch where they made the playoffs one year, and that was my second year in Lake Erie. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't, uh, it just wasn't the way that it was structured, you know, to win, you know, at that level, as you know, you got to get the vets, you got to spend a lot, you know, as much as you need prospects, you need the older guys to help you win at that level. And we just weren't built that way. But, um, 
you know, it was, it was funny because we, you know, I thought, and from the organization standpoint, uh, we were always in the hunt. We we're always competitive and, you know, the players that uh, they felt wanted to get better, got better. So, yeah. you know, uh, that's really all I could, all I could ask for. Yeah. Well, and you, and you mentioned, I mean, you get, and you get your opportunity with Colorado. So obviously you mentioned your job is to, you know, is to keep management happy and, and to develop players. And you must've been doing a good job of that because you were rewarded with that, with that assistant coach job uh, after your third year. The reason why I brought that up at the beginning is because I've had Jared Bednar on here. I've had Bruce Brudrow. And a lot of times the stepping stone requires some type of a championship. Like a lot of times these coaches get rewarded for winning, you know, and then they get their opportunity. Um, and in your case, there wasn't, but you were still doing the service and the job that they wanted you to do. And they rewarded you with that. Why did with the quick jump from Colorado back to BU? Um, it just was, you know, BU was where my heart was at the time. It's one of the top jobs in college hockey. It's where I'm from. It's where I played. Uh, I was replacing a legend in Jack Parker. Um, things weren't great there at the time. Um, and it just was a job that, uh, you know, at that point in my life at 44 years old, uh, I'd moved an awful lot and I thought it was an opportunity to take a job that if I never got another one, I'd be happy with for the rest of my life. And I thought we could do well there. And it was a place I loved and it was close to my home and there were a lot of reasons to go. And I knew we could get really good players too. So that was the other piece of it. So, yeah. You know, but, you know, you talk about coaching and winning championships and as much as that uh, is important and it sure is, don't get me wrong to me. And I always say this to coaches when we talk about, you know, when I give advice to coaches when they ask me or they talk about it, you know, your resume is your players. Right. I mean, the players you coach are your resume. I could you know, put all these qualities that I think I have or all these achievements that I think I've had in my coaching career. But at the end of the day. I mean, your resume is all about the people you coach. Your players are going to sell you. And to me, that's that's the greatest compliment a coach can get. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great perspective to have on that. Now, do you mean how they would be asked about you uh, being involved? Or are you talking about the player that they can become or the player that they are? I'm talking about the players you coach. I know the Rangers, before they ended up reaching out to me, and I had already had a previous relationship with Chris Drury and Jeff Gordon, um, for a long time, for 30 years, both of them. But I know they digged in and they, you know, as much as they knew me, they talked to a lot of players and, you know, they don't want to hear, oh, I love him. I love Quinny. He's a great guy. They want to hear, you know, is he coaching you? Has he made you better? Did he hold you accountable? Did he, you know, and, you know, to me, that's, that's how you, that, I mean, that's how you make it in this profession. You know, your players are going to sell you one way or another. Yeah. That's so wild. I, I've, uh, I mean, and it sounds, I mean, it totally makes sense, but, a lot of times, because I've been talking to players about how to get better and how to be noticed, uh, you want a coach that wants to sell you on yeah. that. Side, right? I mean, it's the exact opposite. I mean, I if I'm playing for you, or I'm in the system. I want David Quinn to be a huge fan of me because that's, that's going to matter. That's going to make a difference in my career. That's right. Um, that's right. How did how if you were to flip the switch on that? Uh, actually, let's not even flip the switch yet. Let's just say that, like, if I know you're not consciously probably thinking I want this guy to say good things about me how do you go about de delivering on those things that you were talking about making them accountable making them better is there is there a kind of a framework that you move from it's daily you know they they got to know you care about them as a coach first and foremost you got to care about them to the point where you're taking time to make people better and you've got to have face time with your players as a head coach I know at our level in particular and I'm sure you saw it a lot of times uh, it's the assistant coaches that are doing a lot of the coaching. And 
I, I don't operate that way. You know, I'm the head coach. I'm responsible for these players and even at this level. And to me, uh, a lot of players can get in trouble when they start measuring themselves against other people. And a lot of guys, you know, my job, and I tell this every player, my job is to make you the best player you can possibly be. My job isn't to make you better than other people. Because, you know, Artemi Panarin, just through God-given ability, is already better than 80% of the players in the league. My job isn't to make him better than 80% of the players in the league. My job is to make him the best player he can possibly be. And that's what I constantly remind our players about. So that, you know, a guy might have one and one one night, and the next day I'm talking, I'm going to show him a couple things, and I'm like, that's not good enough. And they look at me like I'm crazy. But, you know, if they had done the things the way they should have to their capabilities, it would have had two and two, right? And to me, that's the, that's the measuring stick. The measuring stick is to make each player the best player they can possibly be they just can't be better than the people that they sit next to in the locker room or the people across the ice. Yeah, that comparison game can get players, can't they? Yeah, yeah, sure can. Yeah, well, they can get coaches probably too. I, I guess in, yeah. in that game, like the getting rid of that comparison game is a big thing. That's funny. I mean, I'm coaching Pee Wee's right now or Adams, and I honestly I tell them the exact same thing you just said. Like at the start of every year, it's like my job is to make you the best player you can be, and I think you having that you know, that, that type of strategy at the NHL level is brilliant because usually it comes across as wins, losses, and results. But if you put the player first and you get the most out of those individual assets, now you're going to win more hockey games. 100%. People get it ass backwards. You get, like it's about the players. You've got to make, if, I, if we're making every player 10%, 15% better every, you know, every year, Jesus Christ, you're going to have a good hockey team. Your team's going to win hockey games, right? You've got to make the guys better. That's, to me, that's the only way you win hockey games. And what strikes out to me is something that I think is is becoming new, uh, is more in vogue in the league right now, which I'm so thankful for. And that's the the idea that you want the players to know that you care about them. Because in the past, it wasn't necessarily like that. I mean, like there was a big divide between coaches and players. It almost felt like us versus them. And now yeah. when you get those guys believing that you actually give a shit, yeah, like they, yeah. they, you're going to get that extra five, ten percent out of them because they want to, right? One hundred percent, one hundred percent, and it's got to be sincere first and foremost. I mean, you know, pros can sniff a phony a mile away, and I think sometimes though it was the first. It was really the thing that I kind of thought when I got to the Rangers. You know, that's my personality. I come from the college. You know, my background is mostly college hockey. Well, in college hockey, it's so relationship driven. You know, you form a strong relationship with the players before they get there through the recruiting process. Then you get them at the school. And even if they're not good, you can't trade them. You got to coach them up. You got to coach them. It forces you to become a better hockey coach when you coach college hockey. You can't trade people, right? So, you know, I get to the Rangers and I'm taking the same approach. I'm not to change in who I am and how I approach it. And I think there might have been some skepticism, you know, to the way I went about it because I don't think guys are used to people actually giving a shit about them. Right. But, you know, over time, and I was fortunate that I had players there that I had coached in college and had known that could really, you know, give the guys that didn't know me an insight to what I was about. And this is sincere. And, it, you know, it ends up working out. Hey there, everybody. Just going to take a quick break from the conversation with David Quinn. I know you want to get back to it because uh, it's pretty fantastic stuff. But I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening wherever you are doing that, whether it's in your car, in the office, at your place of work or your workout room. Who knows where you are, but you're listening. And I want to say thanks because you have driven us to number 20 
four, number 24 on the charts of podcasts, of hockey podcasts in Canada. That is an accomplishment that I am proud of. Uh, you should be proud of too, because you're a part of it. So keep sharing, keep listening, keep talking about it. Let's keep crushing it. Uh, you're getting my competitive juices going. I want this to be heard all across Canada, all across the United States. Uh, if you know a hockey player, if you have a hockey enthusiast in your family, share it with them. Share it with your organization, with your minor hockey organization. Send it to the president. Say, this is good stuff. Kids need to hear it. Parents need to hear it. Uh, do what you can do to promote the program. I'm trying to do what I can do, uh, but I'm just one guy and I'm not spending money on it. I'm just relying on word of mouth. So please keep doing what you're doing and let's get those, keep those downloads coming. Now back to my interview with David Quinn. I'm going to fill in the gaps and, and, and disagree with me if you want to, but I think that's where the I, element of phony can come into because what we're talking about right now, I think it is a person thing. I think it's a people thing. And if you're the right person, you're going to be that coach that can do that. But if you're the coach who's trying to be the person that's like that, that's when it doesn't ring true. That's when it's not consistent. That's when it doesn't happen. And I think that's a massive advantage if you're just naturally like that. Well, to me, it's all about, regardless of whether you're coaching a hockey team, running a business, running a sales team, the number one element of success, in my opinion, in leadership right now is balancing accountability with likability. How likable can you be while you're holding people accountable, right? And to me, if everything's, you know, if every, every conversation you have with a player is just, gee, you're the greatest, gee, I love the way you play, that's phony. That, that's not how it works. And part of, I think, trust is having hard conversations with people. Because the players that are worth their salt and the people you're eventually going to win with, they may not like hearing those hard conversations, but when they walk out of that room, in their core, they know you're right. They know that you're doing it for the right reason. And then, you know, then it's not phony. Well, and then when it comes from that spot of this is, I'm telling you this because I want you to be the best yeah. player you can be, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a whole different storyline. It's a whole different yeah. narrative. Right. Absolutely. Especially when it's the truth. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Um so, okay, so we're at BU now, and I mean, I got to touch on, I know you probably talked about it 5,000 times, and you, and you probably still see it at night sometimes, but I saw it for the first time today, and this is the goal with eight and a half minutes left, you're in the national championship. Like, was the puck in his glove? I couldn't tell you, I've never seen it. You've never seen it? No. I've never watched one second, I've, every time it... You know, I'll be watching something and they'll start showing it. I just turn it off. I can't watch it. I can't watch it. Yeah. Really, it was uh, it was really one of the most uh, incredible things I've ever been part of, and heartbreaking in so many for so many reasons. I mean, we had such a magical year. We were the best team in the country. We, you know, we you know, we lose a game four to three. Obviously, that goal that was it. I've never felt a bench like that after that goal had gone in. Um, you know, you just knew. I called a timeout. They score right after the. I mean, our guy. I called the timeout two minutes later, and I could just. I mean, I was talking to the team, and the looks on their faces. It was just incredible. And you know, we set a national tournament record that still stands. We had 52 shots on net that night. I mean, you know, it was just. That's the hard part about you know, when you're in a one and done tournament. I mean, you know, that can happen. You know, yeah. but uh, you know, it's uh, and you know. I mean, it just was a very, very difficult, difficult night. For for people who are listening and maybe like me, I mean, I, I'm based out of the West Coast and didn't have a, you know, a, a U.S. Co university 
upbringing, right? right? So, I mean, I, I didn't follow it very much. I'm a WHL guy and follow the Memorial Cup. Um, yeah, you guys are winning. What did you, you, you think when you saw it? Could you believe it? Pardon me? What did you think when you saw it for the first time? Could you believe it? Well, I still didn't. I still don't know what happened. And I saw it on tape, right? Like, yeah. uh, it looked to me like he caught it. Yeah. I think he went. And then it looked to me like he didn't know he had it in his glove and he actually threw the puck between his legs and it went in the net. But I mean, that's the thing. I didn't know if it was in his equipment or in his glove. Yeah. I, it's funny because, you know, the New York Times the next morning had a picture from the goal right behind the goal and the puck's trickling and it goes all the way 200 feet. There's not a Providence player on the offensive side of the red line. <laughs> you know? And I think he caught it and it was, you know, when he went to kind of give it to a defenseman and I think it kind of just rolled down his glove and through his legs and you know. so I got two questions on that one I find that's a very conscious choice that you've made not to ever look at it uh where where is that driven from I just don't want to relive it again I want you know there was so many unbelievable things that happened that year it was uh, it was as much fun as I've ever had coaching a team not just because of the winning but the feel and you know, it's just, uh, you know, what I, I swear I still think about us winning that game and the feeling what we would have, it was at the Boston Garden too, you know, I mean, it was in our backyard. I mean, I mean, I still think about what it would have been like winning that game. I don't think about, you know, I try not to think about what how it actually played out. When now the name Matt O'Connor obviously must be me, near and dear to you. Um, me, me watching that to me, it, it like to me, the, the only thing that compares to you to me is Steve Smith behind the net in Edmonton with the Oilers banking it off Grant Fuhrer's pad yeah. in the third period of game seven, right? Like that. And Steve Smith had an unbelievable career and he's been remembered for that, you know, forever. Right. And that's probably his most notorious moment. What, what did you have to say, if anything, to Matt and yeah, I mean, how, how do you handle that as a coach and a player? Obviously, it's nothing he ever wanted to do. Um, no. I don't know how you can make it right as a coach, but I, I'm sure you would have appreciated some type of words. Well, you could actually YouTube this. It was in the uh, – the, they, they had a documentary on our season that year, and it shows after the game, I'm standing outside the locker room, and it's just dead silence. you got the NSA people there, and it's just he comes walking out of the locker room, full gear, mask on, he's sobbing. And he says, I lost you the national championship, coach. I, la- I lost you the national championships. And I start welling up, and I start losing a little bit. And I hug him, and I said, I don't ever want to hear those words out of your mouth again. I said, we wouldn't have been here without you. There's not another goalie in the country I'd want as my goalie. I don't ever want to hear that out of your mouth again. We win as a team, we lose as a team. We had plenty of chances to win that game, and we didn't get it done. Yeah, good for you. Good. I mean, it's the truth, though, too. I mean, yeah, it, it, it was still a tie game. You know, it was yeah. awful goal and it was a tough yeah. one but it was still a tie game and yeah. you know couldn't get her going right. uh, on, a, on a brighter note which I assume would be a brighter note Jack Eichel you had the opportunity to coach him as a 17 or an 18 year old that season he goes on to be the number two pick we've seen what he's done in the NHL did you talk to us about Jack and I know you're you're high on character um there has been a well, I shouldn't say. I've heard a couple question marks maybe about that. It, 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 did you see Did you see him being a, a leader of men and wearing the C in his chest when he was with you? I mean, nobody loves to win and is more competitive than Jack. And, you know, I know he's gotten, you know, there's been some uh, criticisms of him. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the frustration in Buffalo that he's endured. Uh, he's been put in a tough situation. 
He certainly continues to grow. I see him from afar on the Rangers bench. And in fact, we were actually texting today. Um, you know, they got the right guy there. And, uh, you know, people can lose sight of the fact that he's still 23 years old. Yeah. I think if the guy's been in the league five years. I think people think they're 35 years old. And I remember being in Colorado and we had Matt Duchesne and Ryan O'Reilly uh, for as 18-year-olds. And by the time I'd get up there as the assistant, they had been there for three years and they were 20 years old. And I remember after games, we'd be sitting on the plane and people would be criticizing them and frustrated with them. And I'd go, whoa, whoa, whoa. These two guys should be sophomores in college. <laughs> I mean, just because they've been in the league three years doesn't mean they're pros. I mean, and I think people got to keep in, in mind the age of the players that we're dealing with. A lot of these guys have been in the league if the league's getting younger. And people, A, quit on people too early, and B, get frustrated with people because they think they've been in the league four years and they don't have the same challenges as the normal 22-year-old. That's just not how life works. And you're talking about one of the elite players in the world. And, you know, this guy cares. He works hard. He's got incredible passion for the game. And uh, he's, he's going to get that thing right. That's awesome. That's good to hear that. Uh, you bring up an interesting point and, and one I'd love your opinion on. And, and let's not make this about Jack because he was given the captaincy at a young age. But how do you feel about that? That There's kind of been a bit of a movement sometimes where you get this young star that let's put the C on his chest. I shouldn't say it's arbitrary, but you I mean like it, he's the he's the he's the feature. He's the poster boy. We're going to give him the C and we're going to go on from there. Do you do you how do you feel about putting the C's on, on people uh, on your team and, and, and then that whole movement? I think it's a little bit different in New York than it is in Buffalo. I really do. I think the you know the bright lights and uh, the magnitude of being the captain of the New York Rangers is a little bit different than uh, the Buffalo Sabres. I'm not knocking Buffalo in any way, shape, or form. It's just different. Uh, I think you've got to know the personality. I think you may give a player the C who may not be ready for it, but you know he's going to grow into it. Sometimes when you bestow the C on a player, they understand the level of responsibility that comes with it and they may become a leader sooner than they more naturally would if you didn't give it to them. I think that's what's happening with Jack. Or if you give it to the wrong guy, it could really set a guy back. The responsibility becomes too overbearing, and it just not only doesn't work from a leadership standpoint, but now you lose a player. It affects their play in a negative way, and you've really created a problem for yourself. So I think you really – I think each situation is different. I think you've got to be cognizant of the player and the personality – and your inclination to a young star is you hope that he's going to be the leader. You hope he's going to be the captain. But if he's not ready for it, it will never grow into it. I don't think you can do that. Right. And you I mean, I've been in locker rooms before, as have you. You And and sometimes a guy can have a C and he's not really a C. And that's fine because we know the guy that, that's had played 12 years and is a 34-year-old defenseman on the back end that's the number five guy might very well be the captain of that team, even though he's not recognized with the C on his chest. So, I mean, as long as that's understood in a locker room too, I think it's it, sometimes it gets kind of – I think it's, it's made a big deal of in the media a lot of the time, right? Who has it, when it, when it is, uh, when it is given. But uh, there's a lot of inner inside hockey that goes on there. Do, do you – do you as a coach, and I would imagine it, it changes from organization to organization, but do you have the coach have the, uh, the ability to pick who your letters are, or does that come down from management? I think it's going to be an organizational pick. I really do. I think uh, <clears throat> we've had conversations uh, throughout our organization with potential captains. Are we ready for one right now? Is somebody raising their hand enough to be the guy? Uh, you know, as you know, the shelf life for coaches, it's not – it's not, <laughs> you're not getting tenure as a coach in the NHL. So 
I think organizations uh, are going to put their fingerprints all over it because inevitably the guy you name captain may be the captain for 10 years. And, you know, the coach that picks him may be three coaches removed for him by the time that 10 years, 10 year ends. So I think it's an organizational decision. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's well said. Uh, there was a recent article I read about the Calgary flames, uh, I mean, I, I shouldn't even maybe bring it up because I don't know how how vetted this writer was, but talking about how they think they should Geo should pass the C to Tuchuk because it's now Tuchuk's team, and uh, I mean I'm not in the locker room there and I don't know, but what I do know about Giordano is that you're damn lucky to have somebody like him and and you know having somebody on your back end there that that can lead from an elder statesman position I think is is a benefit as opposed to having it on somebody who's still figuring the league out. Well, you know, the guy won the Norris Trophy two years ago. This isn't some dinosaur. He may be a little bit older, but this guy's a heck of a player still. So, you know, I don't want to stick my nose in other organizations' business. But, you know, as a, you know, just in general, you're talking about a guy that won the Norris Trophy two years ago. Yeah, 100%. Uh, growth. You've talked about growth as a player, trying to be the best player that guys can be. How how about growth as a coach? And how about growth as an individual for, for you? How do, how do you go about getting better uh, every day? Well, I think you can look at other sports. I think you're constantly looking at other teams in the NHL. <clears throat> I mean, you know, there are areas that we certainly know we need to improve on. You know, we've had Zoom calls over the last two months to talk about some of the things that we're going to change a little bit. And, you know, uh, with the, the, with analytics the way they are today, there is an awful lot of data and there's an awful lot of statistics that you can lean on. I think that can be dangerous. I do think you got to be careful with that. Uh sometimes what can get lost in our sport is how simple it is. It really is. I think we can complicate it uh, to a lot, a lot of degrees because of computers and because of uh, analytics. But, you know, to me, you, you just constantly have to be, you know, my number one responsibility is to know our team, right? I watch an awful lot of video on our team. I want to make sure I know our players. I want to make sure that our evaluations on our players is right. And after that's done, then I spend more time, you know, looking at what other teams are doing, seeing what the trends are in the league, the teams that are being successful. And, you know, maybe they're successful for them, but if we tried it with our team because of our makeup, we're not going to be successful doing it. So you also have to be careful with that. Every team's different. Every team has a different identity. Every team is built differently. So you've got to coach your team. You know, I know there are teams in our league that do really well playing a certain way. The way we're built, we wouldn't be successful if we tried to play that way. Right. You talked about, we talked about skill development a little bit, or, or maybe player development, um, trying to get the player to be the best player they can be at, at the level that you're coaching at right now. Do you still believe these guys, uh, do you encourage, do you enforce, is it part of your uh, responsibility to get them better as on individual talents on individual skills? Is, is that part of the process as well? Yeah, obviously we all have skill coaches. We all have assistant coaches, but I think you've got to be involved to a certain degree, you know, and as a head coach, you've got to make sure you're not overbearing. You're not in everybody's face all the time. And, you know, sometimes the best coaching is no coaching. But I certainly have my fingerprints all, all over each player and what they need to do to get better. And Mark Chaccio is our, strength, is our skills coach. He does a heck of a job. He and I have a great relationship. We work well together. Uh, Greg Brown and Dave Oliver, I've got long relationships with. They're two of my closest friends. Uh, you know, there's a lot of continuity between between us as well. And and we just hired Jacques Martin uh, to be our other assistant coach. So, you know, we feel like, you know, our staff, our, these guys do a heck of a job. They're invested in each player. Uh, that being said, I am involved in all of it because I think it's inevitably my responsibility as a head coach. And, you know, 
I may not be on the ice working with them all the time on those on the particular drills they need to do to get better, but I certainly am part of the decision-making process uh, on what they have to do to get better. Yeah, because, I mean, that question was more for the for the younger athletes out there, just understanding that these guys at the top level are still improving or at least trying to improve or trying to recreate themselves or give themselves another layer, right. That makes them stay in the league longer, whether it's learning how to take the face offs or we're learning how to penalty kill or whatever the case may be, there's always something to get better at. And, uh, and sometimes we think that these guys, cause they've arrived that they just kind of stop working on that, but that's, that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. And I, I always go back and tell the story of Sidney Crosby. Uh, he wins the MVP of the award ceremony in Vegas. You know, he's 22, his very first MVP award. He's in his early 20s. You know, they had that big show in Vegas. And here it is in July. I think they had won the cup that year. And he wins the MVP award for the league. And the next morning, Joe Sacco was leaving the hotel. He had an 8 o'clock flight leaving Vegas to go to Boston. So he's at 6 o'clock in the morning. He's on his way walking to go get his cab. And he walks by the weight room in the hotel and there's Sidney Crosby in the weight room working out. So if people think greatness just happens, they're sadly mistaken. And if you're just if you're just working on your game when everybody else is working on your game, you're not surpassing anybody. That is so true. I just uh, <clears throat> I just had the uh, had the honor of interviewing Jerome Aginla like two episodes ago, and uh, he's coaching his son now and stuff. And we were talking. Pardon me. Is he in Boston now? Yeah, he's in Boston now. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, he's coming up to the Okanagan though. I think next next season. But he was saying, <clears throat> he was saying, hey, you know what? Like, if you work hard in practice, and you and you work real hard there, he's like, that's great. But that's expected. <laughs> yeah, I, I joking. I say that all the time to our guy. Like, we're supposed to get excited if you guys work hard. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to do? I mean, we're gonna have a picnic because guys are working hard. Give me a break, jeez. <laughs> No, I mean, oh, yeah. I know it's totally got to that. You want to, you, you oh. want to be great. Like it's, it's beyond working hard at practice. Yeah. And I think that's just, and that's the honesty though, that comes from a coach or from an organization and the culture you're building there, like wherever that comes from at a young age, the family. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the truth is you want to get to great places. You're going to have to do great things. And, yeah. and that's not just a once in a while thing. No, it's not. Um, if you could tell me, I've, I've been talking about character a lot recently um, just amongst my inner circle and, and amongst my players. And I find that that word in and of itself has multiple layers and multiple traits and people will say character. And, and as you say it, or as I say it, I kind of have an idea of what I mean by that. When you say the word character, what does that mean to David Quinn? It means not only how committed are you to what you and I have been talking about, how committed are you to making yourself better, but, you know, in a team environment, how committed are you to making, how committed are you to winning? And that's a broad statement in itself too, because there's an awful lot of things that go into winning. And as a player, there's so many areas that I think guys don't realize that lends to winning. Are you taking care of yourself from an eating and sleeping standpoint? What are you doing socially from an alcohol standpoint? Game in and game out, are you showing up night in and night out ready to play? Uh, how bad are your bad shifts and how bad are your bad games? There's so many things that go into it. And to me, all those things add up to what your character is as a player and a human being. And, you know, there are guys in this league that, you know, for 60 minutes, they help you, they give you a chance and then they don't do anything else for you. Right. To me, the difference makers are the guys that are helping you during those 60 minutes. And then they're also helping you for the next 23 hours every single day. 
And you've got to have guy. You're gonna have majority of players have to be those types of players. It can't just be what you're doing for that 60 minutes. It's got to be what are you doing for those other 23 hours of the day? Are you showing true character? Is it about you becoming the best player you can be? Is it about us winning? And it's hard this day and age because, you know, with the money that's out there and the you know the arbitration and stats, it's such a stat-driven thing and the contracts. It's it's hard for these players to. Uh, put winning at the forefront, you know, and, uh, you know, it goes back to what you and I were talking about from a coaching standpoint. If you can make your players better, you're going to win, right? Don't put the winning first, make your players better. Well, it's the same thing with a player. I mean, if you're a winner and you've got character, the money will follow. As you're saying that, I mean, one of the terms I've used recently is saying that I believe character is a, is a high performance tool, meaning, you can be taught to hockey players in a way that makes them better players. It's right. like a mysterious way to, you know, to like a sneaky way to keep, make them be better people that makes them be better players. And when you talk about it as a skill, and I think character is a skill yeah. that you can, that you can work on, you can build that. I don't think it's a have or a have not. Um, but if you treat it as such, like you talk, I love you talking about the 23 hours there because you as a head coach, you want those guys, you yeah. want those guys. Yeah. Um, and my goodness, if you can be that guy, like it's it, where is there a disadvantage in that? I mean, it's helping you as a as a player. It's helping your teammates. It's helping as an example. It's helping the organization. You're showing up in the community better. Like all these things, um, I just get fired up about thinking of it. And I think it's I honestly think it's like one of the biggest lost arts right now because everyone's so focused on the skill development or on the skating or on the eating or on this. You know right. what? What type of person are you going to be today? One hundred percent. 100 and you know what it's just you know you I would tell my teams at BU all the time first practice we'd have we'd talk about you know winning and I'd say listen you know there are about seven or eight characteristics you need to win championships one is talent and I look around the locker room and there's Keller and McAvoy and Eichel and Greenway and you know Fabro and we have talent check are you going to be mentally tough enough you're going to be in great shape do we have leadership are you going to persevere? Are you going to fight through adversity? Are you going to be a great teammate? All those things, as a group, we have to acquire. And even if we had all of that last year, there's no guarantee we're going to have it this year because everybody changes just a little bit. The name on the back of the jersey is the same, but when you go from 19 to 20, you change. And I'm hoping it's for the better, right? So, And it's the same thing at our level. I mean – you could have every player back. Tampa could bring every player back from last year. Some of those guys are going to change. Life's going to change them in some capacity. Yeah. Whether winning the cup is going to change them, somebody got married and had a kid, someone's going through a divorce, whatever. Life's challenges are going to affect everybody. And mm. to me, every team has to acquire all those characteristics as a group. You can't just rely on the fact that you had it last year. And your leaders must be massively important in in setting that example. I I, I assume oh, it's and you know Bruce Cassidy and I talk about he, you know when I, first time we played the Bruins I know Bruce from my days at BU and we talked before a game and he's like you know and he does, he's done a hell of a job I mean he's shortchanging himself a little he's like I got the easiest job in the league I got Chara Bergeron Marshawn Krejci these guys are culture setters he said we were running practice two days ago and the first ten minutes were brutal he goes Bergeron skates up to me and says this isn't good enough let's do a battle drill. I mean, I'd have to call the PA to approve of a battle drill if I wanted to alter my practice plan. I mean, that's, you know, that's the difference, you know? So, 
I mean, it, uh, you, you know, both, it's such a hard thing to have. Could you, you mentioned a couple of traits there about being a champion, which I think is great. Could you mention, uh, if you would, maybe one or two traits about like character traits that, that you look for in players um, that, that you really hold in high regard? I want to know what, what, how do you react when something goes bad? What that is to me, that's got to be at the top of the list. When you have a bad shift, when we have a bad game, what are you going to do? Because over 82, you're going to have a bad game. You're going to have bad. This is a game of mistakes. And to me, if you're going to be an elite player, you've got to manage bad shifts. You've got to manage bad games. And one of the things we talk a lot about, how bad you're bad. I mean, you're not going to have it every night. And you're going to probably in the first two shifts, I went, I went through it, you went through it. It's just not feeling it tonight. Can the game end? And when, you know, when Quinn has a bad game, can the coaches, when they're talking about the game and the plays go, Gee, I didn't notice Quinn that much. Right. If that's my bad game, I've had a good, good bad game, you know. Right. But I want to know what a player, how, how can a player handle it first? How are you going to handle a bad shift? How are you going to handle a bad game? To me, that in our sport, it's a must because bad things happen. It's not a game of perfection. Well, that's actually a really interesting definition of character, I think, is like, yeah, who are you? Who when are things you? Things aren't going well, when right? Things go bad. Who are you? What are you going yeah. to do? Are you going to make things worse or are you going to make things better? Right. There was a, geez, I can't remember the guess and I'm feeling bad now about that, but they said it might've been Dane Jackson actually, uh, but was essentially said when things are bad, can I make someone else's game better? Yeah. That's a great way. Like to that, that's where he, like that's where his focus went. So instead of being a victim and instead of feeling down, it was like, who can I help right now? How can I be of service? As a coach, that's your job, Right. Our profession can be very selfish, right? I mean, a guy's out there, has a bad shift, and you're pissed off, and you want to run down there, and it's going to make you feel better to go down and lay into it. And you're going to walk away, and what have you done? Have you put him in a position to have his next best shift? It's not about making you feel better. Are you going to allow him to have his next best shift? That's what your job is. And I can't tell you how many times I failed that doing that. But I consciously am always aware of it. I'm always on myself about don't, is this going to, you know, we're all emotional and I'm an emotional person. I'm a passionate person. So I know I'm going to have my moments where I shouldn't have done something, but I freaking work my ass off to make sure I don't do it consistently because my job is to put every player in the next, in the best position to have his next best shift. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, exactly. Cause it's, it can't be about you. It's gotta be about them. No. Oh, you know how do you get the most out of them? the uh you mentioned skill earlier you mentioned that as it being the number one thing to win a championship and we've also talked about character talent gets you some free rides sometimes in that department if you are talented enough how does that pendulum swing for for you like how how good do you have to be to get a free a hall pass on on some of these uh intangibles that you want to have in your player well, I think there are some things that you've got to be clear on when you're talking to your team, and there's got to be guidelines for every player. And I don't treat Panarin the same way I treat fourth-line players. I'd be insane if I did it that way, right? You know, Panarin gets a, you know gets more freedom, and it's just the way it is. It's that's sports, right? You need to you need to know how to let your best players play. You know, one of the things I like to tell our best players when you have it, especially guys like Panarin, Zabanajad, and guys like that. I'm not going to do a lot of coaching (laughs) 
you know, the best thing I'm going to do is let you do your thing. But when you don't have it, I need you to meet me halfway. I need you to do A, B, and C, right? And that was one of the great things that we have going with the Rangers between Panarin and Zibanejad. You're talking about two guys that, I mean, I think Panarin was first in the league and plus minus for forwards. He was plus 36. So not only was he have 95 points, he led the league in five on five points. And I, if he didn't, if he wasn't number one in the league as a forward for plus minus, he was certainly in the top five. And, you know, Zibanejad is a really good two-way player. I mean, it's not just about points for him. He wants to be the best all-around player he can possibly be. So that being said, I mean, as a coach, you've got to hold those guys accountable. You've got to be on them. Uh, but, again, you can only do it if the relationship as the head coach, you constantly build your relationship with them every day. It, and, you know, I mean, very first game we played, second game we played up in Ottawa this year. We're up 4-1 to and Panarin, you know, Six minutes to go, he tries to go through four guys in the neutral zone. They go the other way. He comes back to the bench. And I said, hey, Brad, like, I can't have you doing that. I said, you've got a whole new level of responsibility with this contract. This is different than Columbus and Chicago. And we've got eight players, 22 or younger. And if I got you doing that, then, you know, they're going to think that's the right way to play. And, you know, the thing I loved about him was he completely he, – he wants to he wants to be coached. He wants to do the right thing. And – you know, as a head coach and as a coaching staff and organization between him and Mika, we're very fortunate in that regard. Is that a closed door meeting with with uh, with him? I, I no, I said it to him during the game, and I wanted to make sure other people heard. But then, I, you know, I had another conversation after that. He came in and talked to me. He's like, "Hey, listen, I just want to explain to you, like, you know, I did that because you know it's early in the season. We're up four to one. Da, 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 da. Go one goal lead, I wouldn't do that." And I said, "I get that, but part of growing as a player and evolving as a player is you've got to understand the new responsibilities you have, right?" You're making $11.5 million a year, right? We brought you here to win a Stanley Cup. There's new new responsibility you have as a player in this league with the situation you have here in New York. That's uh, I got I to gotta follow up on that, but I want to circle back to the book Legacy. I know I haven't brought it up yet. Have you read Legacy by I chance? Have heard of no, oh, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Okay, awesome book. I know you'd love know. it. But it talks about the All Blacks. Have you heard about it before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. And so that one, the one line, I guess that they, they had a little bit of a rough patch for a little bit and, and they got too talent driven, right? They were, they were, they were too worried about talent. And then they realized that, you know what, better people make better all blacks was what they said. And then they got back to their roots and kind of who they were. And uh, I just thought that was interesting. I mean, here's the best, here's the best program in the world, right? That, that got too fell too in love with talent. Um, and we can do it too, right? We can do it. Oh. Scouts do it. Coaches do it. Like you love it. And I always draw the analogy to a band. You don't have seven lead singers, right? The best band in the world doesn't get the six best vocalists in the world and put them in a band. It's not how it works. And it's the same thing as a team. You can't, it's not about accumulating the most talent. It's accumulating enough talent with the right people. To me, you don't have to have the most, you have to have enough talent. You don't have to have the most talent. Right. There's a big, big difference. Do you oh, feel- oh, one, other, one other thing, get a goalie. Dwayne Sutter at a coach's conference I was at it was one of the best quotes I heard he said you show me a great goalie I'll show you a good coach (laughs) (laughs) Um, do you do you feel that the gap has has closed from from your from your fourth line player in today's game to your first line player as far from a a talent level is concerned that it would have been 15 20 years ago I think so I think they're more able to contribute offensively. I think you look at Tampa Bay and their third and fourth lines were instrumental and then winning the Stanley Cup. And they weren't just out there to kill time. They contributed 
offensively. And, you know, even look at the Islanders. Matt Martin had five playoff goals, you know. So, you know, I think without question, your third and fourth lines, the way the game's being played and uh, the direction it's going, the pace it's played, you've got to play your third and fourth line more. And, I, and it's one of the things that I know I'm going to do more this year. And I know I've been, you know, you sit by the bench and you see Panarin and Zibanejad and you always want to throw them over the bench. But, you know, one of the things that I think we can do a better job of uh, is continuing to rely on our third and fourth lines. And I think if we do that, we're going to have a much better chance to have sustained success. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, as well as anyone, like that's, that's what it takes to win too, right? All those teams that win, like you mentioned, yeah. like they, they always have that contr- contribution from those bottom six in yeah. a big way, for yeah, sure. Question, you need it, especially especially in this upcoming season. It's going to be such a condensed, cramped schedule. Uh, you better you better uh, you better have all twelve forwards going. You mentioned Panarin. I don't, I don't I don't intend these podcasts to be like hockey driven of current time, but I I am going to throw my huge gripe out that Panarin should have won the heart, in my opinion. Like, and for what you said with that plus minus for dry to win as a minus player. And you're the best player in the NHL blows my mind. And I think it's disrespectful to everyone else who's won it before him. I had an argument with one of the writers who said he was going to vote for dry And I certainly have zero. I mean, I got so much respect for dry and he's a hell of a player, but boy, when you're talking about playing hockey, the guy led the league in five on five points. He was plus 36, <laughs> right? And he doesn't win the MVP. I don't I know. I, I don't understand it. I, you know, if we're just going to give it to the guy that leads the league in points, we've already got an award for that. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand it. I, it yeah. makes sense to me. It really, I know. It, it aggravated me. Yeah. I can't believe that too. Cause obviously, I mean, you're, you're super passionate about your players and he was a huge piece of that puzzle. I can imagine much of that bother you. It bothers me. And I'm honestly not, you know, I'm not right. a Panarin fan or like, I have yeah. no dog in the fight. I'm like, right. this isn't just right. right. Like it's right. just not a right. It's not right. I, I just, right. It bothered me. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on just the coaching aspect at your level, because you've already mentioned the shelf life of a coach. Um, you're going to be heading into your third season. You have Panarin on a long-term deal, making $11.5 million. Where's your leverage in that scenario? Well, my leverage is my, you know, daily personal relationship with him, you know, and uh, we went out and got not only a great player, but a great person. And he and I have had some hard conversations. I mean, you know, he does want to win. He wants to please his coaches, not just me, but he wants to win. And he's looking for direction. And, um, you know, it is a balancing act. It's hard. It's hard when you've got people making that type of money and and guys that have had the success they've had. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And when you peel back that onion, uh, before he's 28-year-old Artemi Panarin, the NHL superstar, he's 28-year-old Artemi Panarin, the human being. Yeah. And, I said this to one of my players my first year uh, when I thought things were getting a little out of hand with him. I called him in my room and we had a real heart to heart. I said, I'm 53 years old. I'm not going to let a 31 year old treat me like that. I don't care how many points you scored in the Sefton league. And when you get people man to man and eye to eye, they know the right from wrong. And after that, we never had another problem. And I love the guy to death and, you know, things are good. So, um, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's such relationship driven at this level right now because of that. But, you know, we're very fortunate that we've got the right people. Yeah, no, that's great. Love what you guys were all about last year for sure. Um, communication uh, from what you're talking about, I mean, what you're talking about, in essence, we haven't used that word communication, but it is communication, right? You're communicating, uh, you're consciously communi- communicating a message. 
how how do you expect a player to communicate to you or is that expected at all are they supposed to do their job or or can they have some level of feedback to you as a coach well, i'm looking for feedback i mean i'm you know i'm not over time i think there's going to be an honesty aspect from a coach that you know you're not right all the time and there's some things they're going to see that you don't and you know i think when you're a man enough to admit you're wrong i think you gain another level of respect from your players if you're walking in there every day and you're wrong all the time then you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your job. But I think uh, I think when you're honest with your players and you realize that, you know what, I made a mistake here, uh, I think big picture it's going to help you. But I certainly welcome their feedback. You have a guy you have a guy who's maybe third line right wing, let's say. I don't even know who that is in your team, so it doesn't matter. But, like, he walks into your office and says, hey, what do I what do I got to do to, to get some more minutes? You know, I, I want some more minutes. I'm prepared to do whatever that takes. Is that conversation welcome? Um, and – and if so, uh, how does that, how does he, how do you go about relaying that information? Uh, I would, I would say to you, there's a lot of factors that go into what my reaction is going to be. Uh, how many times have we had this conversation? What has been his track record as a player? Has he ever been a top two line player? Uh, what are his self-evaluation skills? Who is he listening to? Uh, <laughs> there's an awful lot that goes into that conversation. Because I've had this conversation with hundreds of players. I mean, and I could have it with the Rangers right now. If I brought every all 12 forwards in, I said, okay, we have 12 forwards in, there, in this room. If everybody plays to the best of their ability, we still have a 12th forward. Someone's number 12. And that might be part of the conversation with some of the guys that don't come in and say to me, what can I do? And I'm going to look at them and say, nothing. Because when everybody's playing their best, you're a third-line player. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's just reality. That's yeah. not everybody's born with the same amount of talent or the same makeup. And that, that might be the conversation. Awesome. So you, you, so you, you're, you will say that in a conversation. Oh, if that's needed, if you say. I've said it to hundreds of players. Gotcha. No, that's great. I had Ryan Strom actually on as a guest. And um, again, we talk about player evaluations or, I mean, what they had to say and they, yeah, he, well, I, I guess for good reason. He's had awesome success there and kind of seems like he found a home with you guys. And yeah. he was very, uh, you know, said very nice things about about the, his reception there, the the way the way uh, expectations are communicated, you know, the, uh, the how he was given more responsibility there, which he seems to have been able to step into. So um, I think that's awesome when guys are when guys are buying in and you allow them to buy into to something. Yeah. I mean, that's that's that word called culture, that other C word that is such a a big word in sport and everybody it's a buzzword, but I think yeah. everyone's chasing it, right? Everyone's chasing it and everybody wants it, but not everybody has it. How do you, how do you go about doing that? Is that the same thing? Is it daily? Is it daily just with the players? Well, again, I think we're to the point now where, you know, Zabanajad, Strom, Panarin, Kreider, uh, guys like Truba, you know, those are the guys it's got to be less of me and Jacques and Ali and Brownie. And the next step for us as an organization is for those guys to kind of take a little bit more control of the team. And uh, I thought they did a really good job of it the second half of the season last year. It was really too bad that we had to stop playing because we were really going in the right yeah. direction. You know, we really had, uh, you know, after January 7th, we were one of the better teams in the league. As a matter of fact, I think we were tied with Tampa for the most regular regular wins, regular season wins uh, from January 7th on. And, uh, you know, we really were feeling good about ourselves. And, we had swagger, and there's a big difference between arrogance and swagger. You know, to me, swagger is when you show it to the rink. You know if you do A, B, and C, you'll win. You know, arrogance is thinking you're just going to show up and win. You know, swagger is walking into a rink knowing if I do A, B, and C, we're going to win this game. 
you know, whether it's an individual or a team. And we had gotten to the point where collectively we had swagger, you know, and we won a lot of tight games. We were playing the right way. We weren't sacrificing defense for offense. And, you know, we were putting ourselves in a position. And you were fun to watch too. I mean, I was watching that, that run there. I mean, it was, a, it was an entertaining game. You were playing, you know, in my opinion, playing the game the right way. It was yeah, a good brand of hockey and you had everyone firing on all cylinders. Yeah. It was a shame for that, that to get cut short. Um, I'm going to end with uh, one question here. I, I got a, I got a parent group called up my hockey that uh, help help the parents on their journey with their kids, you know, that get, trying to get places where, where they want to go and try and give back a little bit. And, and I always reach out if I'm speaking to somebody such as yourself and say, anyone have any questions and, and kind of try to pick one. So uh, this is from Debbie Welch Lane and she has a first year Bantam and she says, I advice for a first year Bantam who is small and who hasn't hit puberty yet. You sound like you were somebody who hit puberty early and you had the physical advantage from an early age. So maybe you can't relate to this. Avoid the big players out there would be my first bit of, a, bit of advice, but obviously you got to play to your strengths as a player. So if you haven't hit puberty yet and you're a smaller Bantam player, to me it's about the quickness, the skills, and you can still be a hard-nosed player with, with quickness. And I talk about this. We've got some small defensemen. So for Debbie, it's, it's similar to what I'm talking about with Tony D'Angelo and Adam Fox, two guys that are very gifted offensively. But defensively, you know, when they're going against Ovechkin and Wilson, I'm not asking them to go in there and get physical, overly physical. With but what I want them to do is be on their toes, be quick to plays so you can get under people's hands and be physical in a different way. And to me, that's what a smaller player has to do at, a, at the lesser level. They've got to be quicker. They've got to have a little bit more anticipation. But, you know, don't anticipate or expect as a player to go out and go run people. That's just not – that's not going to be beneficial to your team. You're going to take yourself out of the play. Right. So be patient, right? I mean, you know, people grow up at different times. And uh, just because you're a first-year abandonment and haven't hit puberty yet, it might be an advantage because a lot of times at that Bantam age, the best player is the biggest player. And that, and when I was scouting for BU, I'd be very leery of the guy that was 6'2", 200, and was dominating the game just for that reason because by the time they got to BU, everybody else is going to be as big and strong, right? Yeah. So to me, for Debbie, I think that would be the way to go about it. That's a great point. I was I was going to say that exact same thing uh, if you didn't get to the opportunity part. Like it's an opportunity to to grow a side of your game that you actually need and you have That's to grow right. anyways. That's right. Um, it makes you become somebody better or somebody different. So you I may mean, take advantage of that. Uh, if you don't mind, can I get one more question? No problem. Mental toughness. You mentioned that mental toughness. Uh, I love unpacking these words with with people like yourself because again, I think not everybody says the same thing when they say that. A mentally tough player to you is what? And what can a player do to improve it? I think a mentally tough player is someone who's always finding a way to get something done. Who doesn't just accept the fact that something can't happen. Everything's possible, right? Everything's possible. And, you know, someone who doesn't allow any reason to get in the way of achieving anything that he wants to do. To me, that's, that, that, that's mental toughness. Awesome. Yeah, the power of possibility. I, mean, I talk with some of these th- some of these things. I call it the core four when I'm mentoring some of these young players and saying that there's there's always an opportunity, there's always a solution. It's how quick can you find the opportunity or the solution in front of you is is really a gift. Right, one hundred percent. How quick can you find? It? Right, but, um, I think, but I think you'll you'll find it quickly if you train yourself to have that mindset. Right. It can't mm-hmm. be. Oh geez, I should probably figure out a way to do it. To me, that it's got to be daily. It's got to be even in the weight room. It's got to be when you're training on the ice. It can't just be in a game. It's got to be in everything you do. That's got to be your approach mentally to always figure out a way to get it done. You know, and I talked to our strength coach who's training some of our guys 
in Connecticut. And, you know, I want to know, I, I talked to him quite a bit and I always talk about the attitude. You know, he tells a guy, I want you to do, you know, 185 today. I'm just using a random weight and bench 10 times. I want to know is someone saying to him, put 190 on there. I want to know if a guy's saying, geez, you think I think that's too much, right? I mean, I want to know what the reactions are because that's telling me an awful lot about somebody. And to right. me, that's mental toughness. Yeah. So you didn't say anything about emotions, and I just want to maybe segue into that because sometimes we think that the, the the mentally tough guy is the guy that like doesn't have any emotions or doesn't show any. Is just like this eternal gladiator. Uh, I don't believe that to be the case. I believe emotions exist, but it's how quick can you can you either understand that emotion and respond to it, or or how quick you can utilize whatever emotion you're feeling to again attain the goal that you're looking for. How would you define that when it comes to emotions? Well, I think sometimes emotions can get in the way of being mentally tough because it'll sidetrack you from focusing on the plan and what you need to do to achieve your ultimate goal. So mm -hmm. a lot of times players let their emotions get in the way of being mentally tough. So I think channeling your emotions uh, is a key to being mentally tough. Right. Because the more you're off the grid mentally and emotionally – it's getting in that's time you're wasting in trying to be more pra pragmatic and trying to achieve whatever you need to achieve in a short period of time. Right. So the ability to close the gap is something that I've called that before. Like, you know, like Tiger Woods or whoever you want to say the best of the best, like the, they will get frustrated. They sure. will potentially get angry or whatever the case, but that gap or that window that doesn't last for no. an hour. It doesn't last for a week. You know what I mean? It lasts for like 10 seconds because they recognize it and then they get over it and then they move forward. I, I, and this is such a stupid analogy, but you brought up to, I love golf. When I hit a shitty shot, I give myself 20 seconds to act like an idiot. I can swear. I can stomp. I can, you know, I don't throw clubs, but, and then I got to stop because I got to get back into the mind of hitting the next best shot. And it's no different in, in hockey, baseball, football, whatever sport you're playing. You know, it's great to have emotion, but don't let it get in the way of you ultimately being mentally tough so you can achieve your, your short-term goal. That's awesome. So that was, and I love how you brought that up because that was a conscious decision, like a license you gave yourself because you're an emotional yeah. guy. To say, hey, I'm yeah. going to give myself 20 seconds to deal with this, and then I have to, then I have to put it away. 100. And I don't want to ruin other people's rounds, and I don't want to get in the way of hitting the next. I don't want I don't want one shot bad shot to turn into three bad shots. Right. right? You don't want one bad shift to turn. Into, don't let one bad shift turn into three bad shifts because you can't get over the one bad shift you had. You know. Hmm. You know what though, like. Self-awareness is something that I talk about a lot and like our ability to understand each other, uh, ourselves, I should say. Like my goalie, for instance, I have a goalie in this house who's 10 years old and he is an emotional firecracker, right? He wants to win so bad. Everything's like high and low. We're starting to talk to him about acknowledging that and like what you just said there, like you are going to be upset after a goal that you don't like. Allow yourself the ability to be upset. Yes. But then close the door. And when you actually have that conversation with yourself as an athlete, and he's 10. I mean, I think this applies to 19, 20-year-olds. Yeah. I think this applies to pros. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Then you give yourself the ability to be who you are, but then get back to the spot that you need to be to be your best. That's right. If you want to, you know, you let up a bad goal and you want to swear at yourself and for 10, 15 seconds, vent a little bit and feel a little bit better and then take a deep breath and say, okay, I'm done that. Now I'm moving on. That's fine. That might be part of your mental toughness routine. Right. 
And I love that you say it's a routine. And uh, we've talked about process before in this program, and it's, it sounds like you're kind of driven that way. I mean, have a, if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you can't call it a process, right? No, so. no, no, you can't. Have a process. Sure. David, we'll cut you. We'll cut this off. I know we could probably keep going forever. These concepts and topics are so awesome, and they're fun to they're fun to unpack. But you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us on this holiday day. And uh, if there's any last messages to a player out there who's trying to trying to play and wear the 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 Ranger uniform at some point, what would you, what would you say to a young athlete out there? You got to play with passion, and I just don't mean during the games and the practices. Your passion has to be twenty four seven. Well said. Well said. I think that's great and a great way to end it. Um, so again, thanks again, sir. Um, it's a great talking. You really, really had a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. How could you not actually 90 minutes of a head coach of a national hockey league team, uh, with all the stuff that he was getting into and, and giving us my goodness, I wish we could have talked for another hour and a half. I think David actually would have, would have gone there except uh of course we have to respect people's time and uh maybe we'll bring him back for part two but it was really great spending time with david you I mean how much good stuff did we cover there he talked about mentally tough players he talked about as a coach a balancing likability and accountability he talked about his favorite or not his favorite but he says the only reference for a coach should be his past players uh that's what his that's what he puts on his resume he talked about swagger versus arrogance uh i mean it's just the, the it's a laundry list of uh of amazing tidbits and nuggets and the one thing that came through loud and clear and he said it again and again and again was building relationships and building relationships with the people in your organization the people in your organization happen to be players at the end of the day, and they put on skates, and they try and score goals, and they try and keep the puck out of the net, and they try and win games. David Quinn is of the mindset that when you take care of the person and when you build trust with the person, that the player is going to be better. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think the people side of the game is starting to come back in vogue. Some people are trying to get it and they don't quite get it. Uh, some people aren't interested. And there's others like David Quinn that do get it and that are good at it because they're naturally tuned that way and they continue to consciously apply intention to those relationship building exercises. And uh, I couldn't agree more. That was one of the biggest philosophical uh, you know, shares that we had there because People ask me what I do, right? When I'm working with these kids one-on-one or these athletes one-on-one or teams is, you know, how do you, how do you get the most out of them? And the thing is, it's when you come from a place where they believe that what we are doing together is in an effort to make them the best player they can be, that that's the sole intention of what it is we're trying to get to, there's buy-in there and they get excited about it and they believe it to be true and they don't see ulterior motives and guess what you get results so one-on-one is a little easier when you're dealing with 20 but when 20 guys on a team believe that their head coach and their coaches want them individually to be the best players that they can be and that is backed up with authenticity and that is backed up with integrity and with realness now you got something I think the New York Rangers got something. 
I think they got a good group there uh, behind the bench. I I know, well, I know one of them well, Dave Oliver. He's a past guest on this show. He is a stand-up amazing dude. Uh, I know David Quinn now for spending 90 minutes on a call with him, as did you. Uh, I believe he's the darn real deal. And uh, because I know Ollie well enough to know how highly he speaks of David Quinn, I respect that source. And I also know Lindy Ruff, who I played for in Florida. I do not know Jacques Martin, who they just added to the list, uh, but he sounds like he's a pretty uh, amazing coach in his own right. So I think who they built there, that that cast around David and David himself is a really, really big deal. I think they're doing it the right way and there's nothing but good things to come uh, for the New York Rangers. So New York Ranger fans out there, I think you can be happy. Obviously the draft didn't hurt you this year, uh, but when you're building around players like uh, Lafreniere and uh, Panarin and Zabanajad and, and the goalies that they have there, Shesterkin, uh, it's, uh, it's a fun time to be a New York Ranger fan. So once again, thanks so much. Uh, David, if you are listening, if you listen this long, uh, again, immensely appreciative of your time, uh, of sharing your insights and your thoughts with the listeners here at Up My Hockey. And uh, I guarantee you, you made some players better today. Uh, some players that you may never ever play f- uh, have have them play for you where you may never coach just got better today because they're going to listen to some of that stuff and apply it and that's what this is all about applying what you're hearing using the experience of others and the insight of others to make yourself a better person and a better player so as always play hard <laughs>